I've been here for almost five years, and we've had a number of military escalations and, and wars in Gaza. But I talk to neighbors in their 80s who have lived through this incredible violent history of this country, and, and, and even they say they've never seen anything like this. They've never felt quite like this. Steve Hendricks is the Jerusalem bureau chief for The Post. We reached him Monday evening Israel time to talk about the violent attacks there by Hamas on Saturday and what's been unfolding since. The foundations have shifted. Nothing feels the same. People can't quite process what's happening, much less what might happen next. And none of the scenarios are very positive. And Steve, where are you now? Are you safe? (laughs) People in Jerusalem always assumed they were the safest uh, community in Israel because of a city that's beloved by all the combatants, all the religions, you know, fought over but beloved and therefore considered to be sort of a little bit immune from attacks and violence. I, I think I'm safe, but I have to say it doesn't feel as safe as it used to. On Monday, Israel announced a full siege of the Gaza Strip, saying there would be no food, no electricity, and no fuel. Hamas has attacked Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and other Israeli cities with rockets and taken dozens of hostages. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Rachel Lerman. I'm your guest host today. It's Monday, October 9th. Today, a war in Israel. We talk about how it started, what it means for civilians on both sides, and how it could end. Steve, can you take us back a little bit? What happened this weekend? Well, it was the end of the long uh, Jewish holidays. It started with Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur, and then this was the second weekend of the Sukkot holiday. There were a lot of family celebrations going on. Things were were very shut down here, as they, they always are on holidays. There was this massive, basically, rave that was happening in the in the desert area uh, in the south, not too far from the border with with Gaza. That's not as unusual as it might sound to people on the outside, but there are communities and normal life all around that area on, on both sides of the barrier. After many years in which sort of a rhythm of military escalations and then peacetime sort of become the norm, a cycle people knew how to react to and predict. So it was a very relaxed time. Very early on Saturday morning, just really with the sunrise, people on their phones get these alerts when rockets are fired from Gaza. Not too unusual. But there were quite a number that went off very suddenly. I think for many people that was the first sign that that something was happening. Uh, the, the communities around within sort of firing range of Gaza, they, they did what they do, which is to go to shelters or safe rooms. Again, not that unusual here. Then it took the most bizarre and horrific turn people could imagine. At this dance party that was happening 
they began hearing gunshots, and then the field where they were, uh, suddenly gunmen appeared, a great number of them, and a tremendous panic ensued, and people were running, people were getting shot. Um, there's tremendous numbers of videos documenting all this that are sort of circulating endlessly here. Then we began hearing reports uh, from people in shelters, um, family members getting texts and phone calls. There are gunmen, there are terrorists in our kibbutz, in our street. They're entering houses, they're pulling people out. Uh, Unbelievable things that people are still trying to really comprehend. But as the day unfolded, it became clear that this was a major very well-planned, very well-executed military attack um, with, with uh, strategies and contingencies and multiple modes of entry. They came in uh, out of uh, a, a breach in the security wall on motorcycles. They went over on paragliders. They went offshore and came up on the beaches. It was a proper invasion from a force that has really never been considered to have those kind of capabilities. And how did Israeli intelligence miss this? Well, that's a question that's going to consume this country for years to come. There are no answers at this point. I mean, this is still unfolding. There are still Hamas fighters coming out of Gaza, um, replacing troops that have been fighting. It's still such an active combat zone in some places. The Israeli military say they are very close to sort of containing the last of those hotspots. But after this comes um, a response of a scale that we don't know yet, but it's certainly going to be intense. The 1973 Yom Kippur War has always kind of stood up in Israeli history as the biggest failure of intelligence, of readiness, of anticipating, uh, you know, the attack from multiple Arab neighbors. It is an all-out war. That's how Israeli Defense Minister Moshe Dayan describes an invasion of the Golan Heights and the east bank of the Suez. This is already being discussed is on a level with that. And as the death count rises and the fate of these dozens and dozens of hostages, many of them civilians, uh, it remains unknown. Um, this could become the, the most notorious day of, of unpreparedness in, in this country's history. And what has been Israel's response so far? The military was absolutely clearly caught off guard. Um, there's a lot of discussions here that they had built this, um, the estimate is something like a billion-dollar high-tech security barrier between Gaza and Israel. It includes concrete fences, subterranean barriers, um, radar, detectors of all kinds. But then they largely left it uh, without enough personnel to monitor it. Uh, That seems to be some early analysis. Now, we we don't know uh, what the particulars are of of deployments, but for whatever reason, there was not a ready military presence at the site of this attack. So for the last many hours now, they've been trying to mount that with the air attacks, with moving tremendous numbers of personnel into the area, going house by house and village by village in the early hours, 
And, and now they tell us, they think they're close to having the area completely cleared and, and uh, secure, but we always uh, seem to get another report of more um, Hamas people coming out and the fighting just continues. So can you tell us how civilians are feeling right now inside Israel? I mean, this is a population that's, that's used to, to warfare. They're used to rocket attacks. They're used to air raid sirens. Um, they're used to terrorist attacks. I, I, I've never felt a mood like this in the country. I, I don't even quite know how to describe it. It's certainly fear. It, there's a sort of a, a, a gut-churning uncertainty about what's happening now and what's likely to happen. But even about the, the future of the country, comparing it to, to 9-11 and the feeling that a, a lot of Americans had, just not knowing what the future would look like or f- feel like when, when our assumptions were so uh, shattered by shocking events. Right. And it's still so raw. I mean, it just happened, what, less than three days ago? It's still so raw, and it's just replayed uh, on a loop on social media videos. There's so much documentary evidence of of really horrific scenes of people being killed. Uh, I just talked to a, a young woman today whose grandmother, very elderly, lived alone on a kibbutz for most of her life. They lost touch with her after she said someone was coming in the house. And then they, you know, they saw a video of her being driven in her own golf cart with four Hamas fighters across the barrier into Gaza. That's the last they know of her. She's very elderly, and they really have very little hope for her her safety. That's terrifying. So people are watching these things over and over. I mean, I'm sure some families know how to avoid that, but it's in the air, and it's just repeating itself. Can you tell us a little bit about the hostages, about the hostage-taking, and what Israel is doing to try to get people back? This is a country that's had a lot of hostage situations through its history. We've had commando raids to rescue hijacked passengers on airliners. We've had a lot of deals uh, to release um, Hamas prisoners in exchange for a captured Israeli soldier, for example. None of that compares to what's happened here, effectively the mass kidnapping of children and families and elderly people, um, and then all being held in a in a very hostile territory. The options are really not good in any case, and the mood here is probably not one for some grand bargain. So there are various estimates, but at least between 100 and 130 captives being held uh, and their families have a very real prospect of watching um, a massive military operation unfold that uh, probably will not go well for anyone in Gaza, captive or resident. So Netanyahu has vowed to destroy Hamas, but what does that mean for the people in Gaza? Is there a way for civilians to leave? You know, I'm afraid the options to leave Gaza are incredibly limited. Um, I know plenty of people want to. Uh, I know because uh, our very close, uh, longtime Washington Post colleague, uh, Hazem. Take your time. There's, there's no hurry. Hazem Belusha um, is trying to get out with his wife and two young sons. 
we've been working to find a way. Uh, there aren't many. You, some people are getting out um, through the crossing with Egypt, but even that is restricted. Um, there are lists and there are, um, you know, great barriers to that that we and he and thousands of other people have yet to overcome. Um, many, many people are basically trapped there. That's very scary. Yeah. Steve, can you take us back a little bit? This is a really big question, and I know there's a lot of history here about land and religion, but can you remind us why Hamas and Israel are fighting now? Well, Hamas is recognized as a terrorist group by Israel, the United States, um, the European Union. It it came to power when it surprisingly, um, more than 15 years ago, won an election. And after that, Israel had to make a decision about and the rest of the world, how to uh, relate to this this terrorist organization that was suddenly effectively the government of this enclave of of two million people. And so it's been messy, it's been complicated, there's been exchanges and military um, fighting across the border for all of that period, including some quite major and deadly full-out wars. There's a mix of people who try to influence uh, Hamas and steer it, including the Qataris and the Egyptians. It's a rival of the other major Palestinian party, Fatah, which is dominant in the West Bank and controls the Palestinian Authority, which is the governing body of the West Bank. Um, And it's always been a bit of a back and forth about exactly how militant and how terroristic is this group? Are are they becoming more moderated as they have had the responsibilities of governing? It's a very difficult place, Gaza. I was just there a few weeks ago. There's not reliable fresh water. There's not reliable electricity. Part of that is the effect of of a very tight economic embargo that Israel maintains. Part of it is certainly Hamas mismanagement, misgovernment, corruption, and really their priority being, you know, a resistance to the Israeli occupation. And what I think we've just seen is throwing away all the other aspirations they may have had as an entity to to govern or to to play a positive role, and full-on commitment to to the armed resistance and an attack on Israel. Is it fair to say that tensions between Israel and Hamas have been escalating recently? Yeah, they definitely cycle. My colleague Hazim and I just did a story uh, last month about how it seemed to be ticking up again. It's been um, relatively calm uh, for several months, um, even as the West Bank has seen almost nightly military clashes in various cities and camps. Gaza had actually kind of settled down for the summer. And a lot of workers who had permits to cross the border into Israel did that, up to more than 15,000, 16,000 of them. But then just in the last few weeks, the cycle seemed to turn and maybe turn faster than we, we recognized. There was an incident in which um, Israel discovered some explosive materials being smuggled out in a shipment of blue jeans. Hamas came out and and declared that a couple of the perpetrators of some killings of civilians in the West Bank were 
were their operatives. Um, Israel froze that uh, number of permitted workers. So this sort of delicate attempt on both sides to achieve what they call an economic peace with the benefits of integration flowing back to the population kind of went off the rails. That's not the first time that's happened, and people, I think, had a lot of hopes that that it would get get righted again. There were analysts in, on both sides, including people I talked to in Gaza, who really said neither side um, wanted a major escalation at this point. It just didn't serve their interest. Um, and they and we were just as wrong as everybody else about what they were planning. After the break, we'll talk about domestic politics in Israel and the global response to Hamas's attack. We'll be right back. So, Steve, this conflict comes at a time when there's already a lot of political upheaval within Israel. Um, Last time you were on the show, it was to talk about the political crisis over a move from Netanyahu's government to weaken the judiciary, which a lot of people in Israel saw as anti-democratic. Can you remind us of that context? That's a great example of how the last uh, two days have really just shifted uh, the plates here entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this year has marked the, the most intense domestic political upheaval in, in Israel's history. Um, massive, massive protest every week in reaction to the, this government's plan to restructure the judicial system here, basically limiting the power of, of the prosecutors in the Supreme Court. Uh, limiting the power of the Supreme Court to overturn certain government rules that it deemed uh, unreasonable or unconstitutional, um, even though Israel doesn't have a written constitution, it's those concepts are the same as in as in the United States. As part of those protests, for the first time ever, really at, at large scale, uh, members of the military took part protesting the government. Thousands of reservists, who are really a backbone of the Israeli military, uh, said they would not turn out for for training uh, in the course of this, and uh, you know, as their leverage point to to stop this legislation. So there were a lot of concerns. A lot of security officials were saying publicly that um, it was a dangerous moment for readiness. That uh, Israel wasn't uh, prepared, as it tries always to be. You know, there were a lot of questions about what would happen if in a major emergency. So the emergency came, and the response from the protesters and those reservists who had had joined them was immediately uh, to to put on uniforms for the reservists, to Mm. cancel the protests for the demonstrators. Um, I I would say, with, with no exceptions that I can see, you know, the country is responding here with with one voice. And all of that concern, uh, all of that controversy, um, it'll come back in some form right now, but it has just been wiped away from the country's consciousness. Wow, so that's a pretty dramatic shift very quickly. Overnight, in hours, that happened. Mm -hmm. How has the international community responded so far to this conflict? What What kind of response are we seeing from outside Israel? 
Well, you know, the waves of shock just keep radiating outward and, uh, you know, it, it, endless su uh, expressions of, of support. Some countries are, are uh, trying to organize evacuations of their citizens. Um, it's not that, for example, the United States has called for Americans to leave, as the State Department will do in, in some very dangerous circumstances. But there, there are very few flights coming in and out. So they're trying to be, they're trying to find avenues for people who want to leave, to leave. And I know that's true for, for many uh, embassies. Um, but more materially, I mean, uh, we see that Washington is, is deploying warships to the area. Um, the president has pledged enormous uh, strategic, you know, immediate military support for, for whatever is real needs. It's, it's raised questions about whether we can uh, be supporting uh, the ammunition needs of both Ukraine and, and now this conflict. Mm -hmm. um, but it is a testament to, I think, how seriously the world is treating the moment. So how does this end? In the past, in these situations, there's been a third-party country that would broker peace. Is, is that possible here? Um, who might volunteer to do that? Well, I mean, I, I, I guess we, we want anything to be possible, but there's no sight of anything like that so far. Uh, um, this is still, this is still happening. This is still unfolding. Uh, and, and it feels like only the first phase of it is unfolding. And then there's going to be uh, a very frightening next phase, which will probably mean very intense uh, fighting in Gaza, which, which has already begun with very heavy airstrikes around the enclave. Um, you know, we, we know from experience that the moments for diplomacy to step in and have effect are usually not in the heat of the early days. Um, so I, I think what happens next is, is really one of the questions that has um, Israelis very disoriented, and Palestinians too. I've talked to Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza, and they're, you know, they're terrified of how this might unfold. Um, I have yet to talk to anybody who who offers any confidence of anything uh, soon or positive. Steve, thank you so much for doing this. Stay safe. We're thinking of you. All right. Thanks, you guys. Steve Hendricks covers Israel for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Emma Talkoff with help from Ariel Plotnick. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. If you want to show your support for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to help us do this work. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Rachel Lerman. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.